Thanks. Well, I'm sure there's all kinds of things you could do on a Sunday evening, uh, and I'm glad you chose to be here. So thank you. And I, um, just so you know, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to, I brought some pictures and stuff. So I've been talking a lot. Some of y'all have read our book, and I thought I'm just going to show some pictures for a little bit. Um, but Katie and I came down from Philly. Um, where I've been proud to call home uh, for about 25 years. Moved there when I was nine. Just kidding. Uh, but, you know, I, I went to college there and, uh, and sort of got radicalized there uh, through an experience with homeless families is, is how we started. I was a student at Eastern University, incidentally also where Brian Stevenson at Equal Justice Initiative went to um, Eastern. And, uh, but while I was at Eastern, I ended up uh, hearing about a group of homeless moms. And at the time, homeless mothers and children were the fastest growing, this is still true, the fastest growing homeless population uh, is women and children and the least amount of shelter space. There was a 10-year waiting list for affordable housing. So these families didn't really have anywhere to go. And they looked around North Philadelphia and we've got, uh, like 25,000 abandoned houses. We've got 700 abandoned factories. There's a lot of abandoned space, and yet uh, they had nowhere to go. And so they found this particular building, an old abandoned Catholic church, and they moved into it. And they started living there. And um, sadly, uh, the response of the Catholic church was that they were trespassing, and they gave them an eviction notice of 48 hours. And they said, if you're not out within two days, you could be arrested for trespassing on the church's property. And uh, <laughs> something about that just didn't feel quite right, you know? And uh, so we, uh, we organized a student movement of solidarity with those families. And this is always important for me for the backdrop because this is what led to everything we're doing now. And uh, these families were amazing organizers. They. Um, hung a banner on the front of the cathedral that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? And they, they held a press conference and they said, we, you know, we mean no disrespect to the Catholic officials or the archdiocese, but um, we've talked to the real owner of this building, the Lord Almighty. And they said, God said we can stay until we figure something else out. And so they stayed and we uh, basically moved in alongside of them. And that is how our community started. And uh, what also happened is we started reading about the early church in the book of Acts, uh, where it says that no one claimed any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had and they worshiped in each other's uh, homes. And so the gospel was lived out of dinner tables and living rooms and was this radical economy of sharing. Um, and that vision kind of caught our attention. And so coming out of college, um, we pulled our money together and we started our community. People always want me to finish the story, so I'm just going to tell you. The families ended up leaving voluntarily the cathedral, and um, they, uh, they walked to the mayor's office 
and they, because people saw it on the news and like uh, donated houses, all kinds. Our city came together alongside these families, and so um, they left voluntarily and they left very dramatically and beautifully by marching to the mayor's office and telling our mayor and our city officials, you have no idea what it's like to be a homeless mom with your kids, but we invite you to get to know us, to get to know our children, to walk in our shoes just a little while. Um, and they took off all their shoes with that invitation, left them in this giant pile outside the mayor's office. So that kind of, um, that radicalized uh, many people in our city, including me, and it, it also became clear to me that one of our challenges in the church is not just a compassion problem, but a relationship problem sometimes. That we, we end up, it's a proximity problem, that we're not always connected to those who are suffering. So uh, the last 20 years for us has been about trying to move a little closer to uh, our neighbors who are struggling to make it. And so I'll, I'll show you just a couple other pictures here on this. So that's the old cathedral. Katie and I got married there. So Katie's here somewhere. I won't embarrass her. She don't like me to call her out, but she's right in that general area. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, and so we, we got married in there and um, that we rode off on our tandem bike. You know, that was our little stretch limo and uh, got our cans going behind and whatnot. But that's our, our neighborhood, you know, and our block there that gathered. And one, one of the things I want to say as I show you these is I'm not showing you these as any like prescription for what you need to do, but this has like been our little experiment and community and, um, and what uh, Clarence Jordan, who was a part of a community called Koinonia Farm, any of y'all heard of it? It was in Georgia. And this is before the civil rights movement. Um, they moved in together and started a community with black folks and white folks. And they said part of what it means to demonstrate the gospel in our society in Georgia is for is us to own land together. And it was illegal for them to own land together. And Clarence said the church is to demonstrate on earth what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And so this is what it looks like. And their lives were threatened, right? I remember one story with Clarence where they said uh, uh, he was going through a town and, you know, they were always traveling with black folks and white folks together. And uh, these folks in this little t sundown town, they said, listen, we don't let the sun go down on people like you in our town. And uh, Clarence was always real clever. He said, well, I'm glad to meet y'all. I've been waiting my whole life to meet somebody that can make the sun stand still. And a uh, little sassy. You see why he got in trouble here and there. But, you know, that, that so, like, I like that, that idea that, like, our communities are to demonstrate. They're to be demonstration plots for the kingdom, to show folks what it looks like. And so, for us, like, we've been... Um, uh, moving into this neighborhood where we've got a lot of abandoned buildings. Um, we've got a lot of uh, community that just happens because our, our houses are so close together. So for a lot of what we do, um, uh, the community happens in the streets and on the sidewalks. And we have created rhythms for our neighborhood where um, we've even got things like we it's called a play street permit. So for the whole summer, we can close off our neighborhood so no cars can come through from nine to five. And the kids can open the fire hydrants and play in the street and not worry about getting smushed and stuff. So that's like... Um, but we, we also uh, have an incredibly 
diverse neighborhood uh, in, in almost every way. Young families, old families. We've got a lot of families that their grandparents used to work in the factories. We've got uh, one of the most ethnically mixed zip codes in Pennsylvania. So there's a, a lot of challenges, but there's a lot of beauty, right, that we just build on. And um, so these are just a, a few pictures of our neighborhood. And um, one of the, the things that we've had to learn, that we've learned is that uh, there's a great theologian named Ray Bakke, and he wrote a book called Theology as Big as a City. And one of the things that he talks about is how, it, when you go to seminary and stuff, they talk about exegeting scripture. It's a big fancy word, right? That just means reading the scripture in the context that it was written. So trying to listen to the Bible with first century ears and things like that. And he says, that's good, but we've also got to exegete our neighborhoods, right? So one of the things I want to invite us to think about is um, what is the context with which we're trying to live out the good news of Jesus, right? What are the places where we see the possibilities and the seeds of the kingdom of God? And what are the challenges and obstacles to it? And they look a lot different, I'm sure, down in Montgomery than they do in North Philly. But, but you know, what, what do we see God doing and where do we see the devil at work? And one of the things that we um, uh, wrestle with is... Uh, the second largest source of income in our neighborhood is the drug economy, right? So we call it a replacement industries. As 700 factories left, we lost 200, uh, over 100,000 jobs. And now we have a replacement industry of largely the heroin economy. So we're trying to figure that out. So it, it's not as simple as telling kids not to sell drugs on our corner. We've got to have another economic alternative uh, that they can take care of their families with, right? So we have... Um, a recovery community that this is uh, our community called New Jerusalem that our friends who are in advanced recovery from heroin um, lead that community but one of the things that's beautiful about it is on the wall it says we cannot fully recover until we help the society that made us sick recover that's good right? I'll say it one more time uh, we cannot fully recover until we help the society that made us sick recover so we see that God is healing individuals but God is also healing a society that sin has had a mark on right we look at uh, our racial history we look at economics so we need to think of uh, God redeeming individuals and our streets and neighborhoods and world um, that's also my my uh, one of my mentors there sister Margaret she, she's almost 90 years old now. And I'll just tell you one little Sister Margaret story. She, uh, she got sick and was in the hospital. So I went to visit her and she gave me this very dramatic, like, this might be the last time I see you on this side, but I'll be right on the front lines of heaven waving you in when you get there, right? And then, uh, so I thought, you know, this is, this is a little dramatic, but okay, you know, we talk. And then the next, like, three days later, I call and check on her. And her community said, oh, yeah, she got better. She just kind of healed right up. In fact, she's so good, she just got arrested at the Pentagon this morning protesting the war I hope I'm doing that when I'm 90 right so that's that's our, my mentor um, she's also a Catholic nun and when we started our community it was great because we had these old Catholic folks that came and they're like you know we've uh, we love what the spirit's doing you know something fresh and vibrant and you're, you're this vision for the early church and all that and she goes but uh 
some of us have been doing community for a little while. She said, our community's been going for about 1,600 years, so we might have a little bit to teach too, you know. So we've learned a lot from our old Catholic friends, and, uh, and, and we've learned kind of how to live in community from our neighborhood and from others. So uh, th just a few glimpses of what community has looked like for us. I mean, we really believe that ultimately a lot of the stuff that we're talking about it's not that complicated right like we are trying to figure out how to live uh, in deeper community with each other how to share possessions share life share our struggles and also create rhythms for our neighborhood so like that's our our one of our mother's day celebrations and almost every month we have some kind of um, neighborhood celebration that brings us together and y'all probably got things like that that you do but some of those are around the uh, calendar of the church like we have a big easter party we do a big old uh, christmas celebration um, but then we have our own little holidays or holy days like uh, this is labor day when our kids go back to school it just turned into the epic back to school party you know so we have like a thousand kids that come out and we have um like a two-story water slide sometimes with liability insurance you know and we have uh, like we got our friends that are street performers and rappers and we have pastors from all the congregations that come and pray over the kids in different languages you know and it's beautiful and we uh this is our buddy uh, josh horton he's the number one juggler in the world so we had this idea because we believe in joy amen we believe in celebration and hope and so we said um, let's do something funky and we're going to we're going to send out a press release to all the media telling them to come on a good day not just when someone gets shot and we said so we're going to break a record in Kensington in North Philly our neighborhood and uh, uh, so we, we actually had media come and stuff and we broke the record he, he's he, by the way he's breaking the record for breaking the most world records pretty cool and uh, so he broke the record for the most apples sliced while juggling machetes um, in 30 seconds um, and so, that, I mean, so I think like part of what I would invite us to think about is that, you know, all of our gifts have room in the movement of God, right? Like we, we've given get different gifts. And I love how Frederick Beekner, a uh, wonderful writer, he said that what we've got to do is connect our deepest passions to the world's deepest pain. And when our passions meet the world's pain, that's where we kind of discover our vocation. Our, our gifts, when, when they're doing something to liberate and heal and bring joy to other people. So we got like elderly folks that crochet blankets for folks on the street. We got folks that now make like uh, bed rolls out of those plastic bags from uh, uh, Walmart and Target. They weave together these mats that are light Durable, like they're waterproof, they're, and they and they make them for our friends on the street. So everybody's gifts kind of fit into the puzzle of what God's doing. Um, and a part of that, like we even had a plumber that came, and we're renovating abandoned houses. And this guy goes, "I've been a plumber my whole life, so I thought I'd just come and help people with their plumbing, and I might live with you for a month." We're like, "We might need more than a month," you know. But he uh, came and just like 
we took a list like a, of everybody in the neighborhood that you know had a leaky faucet or they didn't some of our neighbors didn't even have uh, running water and so we were able to work together and uh, so all those gifts come together and one of the exciting things that we've been doing is we see all this abandoned property uh, you can get a house in Philadelphia for a dollar a friend of ours got one for five hundred dollars. I think he paid a little much, but you know, like we, like that's what happens when we got so many abandoned houses. And so now, what we're able to do is we've created a whole model that's built after the model of Millard Fuller, who started Habitat for Humanity, right? Where each family does three hundred and fifty hours, where they build their house, and we finance it at zero interest, because the Bible has something to say about making money off of interest, right? Sin and uh, so we don't like we 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 finance the houses at zero at no interest. We sell them for thirty five thousand um, dollars. Some of y'all wanting to move to Philly, come on. And uh, but we we like we we customize the monthly house payment. So we're building a, a neighborhood together. So this is like a before and after. So I'm gonna give you that's the little before. Here's the after. I know we're a little on the Methodist side, but you're gonna need to tap into your. Pentecostal that's inside this liberate I'll give you another shot so there you go that's before and that's after much better um, so we you know we took you'll get another chance here um, this is an abandoned lot that we turned into a garden and nice. <laughs> and uh, these little like hubcap flowers were made by some of the young moms in our neighborhood because we believe in kind of redeeming trash and making things pretty. So we're, uh, you know, creating all this. And the part of why I could get excited is because this is not just something I did. This is something we did. And it's something God is doing right in our neighborhood. So we can celebrate all this. And we've had tough days, you know, for, for us uh, about 10 years ago, we had a huge fire that incidentally started in one of the abandoned factories on our block and burnt down our whole neighborhood. A hundred families were displaced. And so the Red Cross set up a shelter. But check this out. They came like two hours later and they said, listen to this. We set up a shelter because there are a hundred families that were, you know, affected by this. But they said nobody ended up staying in the shelter because everybody in your neighborhood opened their homes up to each other. And like one family, they saw everybody with their dogs and cats on the sidewalk because their house had burnt down. She's like, I'll be the pet shelter. We're like, God bless you. You know, and uh, then like we had like neighbors that started cooking and we, we like literally came out of the ashes and rebuilt that block together. Um, and thankfully nobody got hurt, but we were, you know, we, we went from this, what it looked like after the fire um, to the kind of space that we've been building. and and. That now we have friends that we, we've been calling this Phoenix Park because it came up out of the ashes, right? And, and we also now have like friends that have been um, just finished a giant community center on that block where we'll have a gym and a library and a, a cafe and everything. So um, it's a resurrection story. And we've got a lot of uh, murals that we paint and um, uh, some of them are like uh, a little bit more theological, like this one here, which if you look close, you can see the lion lamb and the dove and the rolled away stone, you know? So this one's a little bit more explicit um, on the theology, but we had a neighbor that is a pretty hard corner and our neighbor said, every time I walk by this corner, it's like God is watching over our neighborhood. And she said, it feels like our own version of the stained glass window 
Come on, brother Lucas, right? Yeah, like, like, this is our own stained glass window. And we also kind of learn as we go to that one of our lessons on this one was that painting a mail container is a federal crime. Who knew, you know? But uh, so we roll with it, though. We roll with it. So they, they were nice to us. Just for the record, when we started painting, whoever started painting that, when they did it, there were like five, ten different colors of graffiti. So we thought we were helping. But anyway, there we go. But we, you know, we, we've been planting gardens, and some of y'all got some beautiful community gardens around here. I think one of the greatest things we can do to bring community together is grow stuff, you know, and, and uh, get people's hands in the gardens together. And we uh, have one of our, uh, some of the stuff we've been growing, we've got like a whole edible garden where the kids can come and uh, pick food in the summer and eat it and see where food comes from, you know, and... Um, uh, like when when uh, some some of our kids, you know, some of my friends, will, my evangelical friends will say, well, what does any of this have to do with the gospel? I'm like, hold on a minute. You know, because I, 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 I think that part of what happens in our world is when we lose touch with creation, it's, it's hard to stay in tune with the fact that we've got a beautiful creator if everything that we look at is d d destructive and decaying, right? And so there's a, something that happens where we see the wonder of life, you know, like one of uh, this, uh, Tyshawn right here, one day he came down the block and he's yelling hysterically and I thought there was a crisis or an emergency and he dragged me down the street and he goes, what is that? And it was all this drama to show me a firefly. <laughs> And he's like, what is that? I'm like, that, my brother, was a great day for God. God was like, I'm going to make a bug that's butt glows in the dark. And, uh, but that, that wonder, right? So I, I, I think part of what we can do is it's not like we need massive finances. Sometimes we just got to figure out how to bring people together, you know, and get our hands in the dirt. So uh, growing food is awesome. And um my wife's here, so she keeps me honest, you know, because when she's not here, I can say, and then we raised three people from the dead. But when, she's, when Katie's with me, she'll be like, it wasn't three people, it's two, and one of them really wasn't dead. You know? <laughs> but like, so this was our very expensive science experiment that is still, like, working out some kinks. It's called aquaponics, right, where you grow food based off the water from the fish. So it all looks pretty good. Uh, on paper um and um so we like you know plant uh, we put fish underneath and grew plants on it and it's awesome because like the food grows like it's on steroids so this was one of our little experiments in urban gardening we grew all kinds of like kale and swiss chard and shared it with neighbors and then we went on tour speaking and all the fish died so i'll tell you more about that later but we're able you know we're figuring it out as we go and um the, the, these last few pictures before we open it up in a minute are, um, you know, as we're asking, like, what does it take to imagine the kingdom of God on our block? And that's, that's what I think may be a good way of thinking about this, because some of my best theology comes from my neighbors, and one of them said, I get what we're doing, I get it. And I said, what? And she said, we're just trying to bring the Garden of Eden to North Philadelphia. Like, man. N.T. Wright can't even say it that good. You know, I, like, we're trying to bring the Garden of Eden to North Philadelphia. And so we're trying to imagine, like, what does it look like for God's dream to be realized for Montgomery, right? For, for your neighborhood, for our country, for our city. So I'm going to whip through a few of these. Um, but one of the things that we've got to ask, too, is, like, what are the obstacles to that? And for us, 
That drug economy is a big deal. We've lost over a thousand lives in North Philadelphia to heroin. That, that may be different, you know, than, than some of the struggles. It may be the same as some of your neighborhoods. But we got so tired of seeing how ineffective and how apathetic we can become to that, right? And, and so... Um, it, it happened for me, I remember one of the kids talking about in the winter making snowballs and being scared that they would find a needle when they were having a snowball fight. And those are times where you go, this, this is messed up. This is messed up. This is not God's dream, right? And so we, we have tried to figure out ways that we can sensitize ourselves and wake folks up. You know, as Dr. King said, we're meant to be the conscience of our, our, our society. How can we stir people's hearts? And so, so prompted by our kids, we had a little campaign um, called Need a Little Help, where we gathered the needles from our block. This is, these are needles from our streets and from our parks, and we packaged them up in epoxy, and um, we delivered those needles to our public officials. So we held a press conference and we gave one to the health commissioner and to the city council members and state reps and our, our young people were the ones that were delivering them and leading the way. And I gotta tell you, it, it moved people, right? It's, it's similar to how EGI has taken uh, the dirt from places where, of racial terror, where uh, African Americans were, were killed, and we've we're, we're, we got to sensitize ourselves to the pain, as, as, as Scripture says, it cries out to God from the ground. So that's what we were kind of doing in our own way by delivering our needles. And uh, it was awesome, too, because if our public officials did not come, then our kids, like, they're like, nothing's stopping us. We're like, I'm not sure you're going to get through the metal detectors with a bottle of needles. They're like, yes, we will. And they went right through them, you know, and uh, delivered them to the mayor and anybody that didn't show up. And I don't think it was a coincidence that it was only a matter of, of weeks before our city uh, declared a state of emergency with emergency funding and emergency response that included needle uh, deposit places and things like that. I mean, these are just a very surface. We got a lot bigger vision, but we're starting there, right? So, but it begins with sensitizing our public officials because part of it is that proximity, right? They're, they're like, unless you hear kids talking about finding needles in the snow, you don't think about it. So I don't know what those issues are for you, you know, but for us, I think all of us have got to ask, what is squashing the dignity and the hope of our brothers and sisters? Like how, how can we uh, stir each other's hearts a little bit more? And certainly one of the things that we've also been wrestling with as a city is um, how we can do a better job at welcoming uh, immigrants and refugees. I mean, I can go down my block and we got a family from Haiti. We got a family from El Salvador. We got a, uh, families from Vietnam. We got families that have survived things I can only imagine, right? And so what began to happen in our city is um, as we saw um, so much of this language around um, fear, I think so much of what's unhealthy in our society is when fear begins to be our driving force rather than love, right? And, and scripture is very clear that we, we have to choose, like love and fear are enemies, right? That, and perfect love casteth out fear. So we had to decide, like, what does that look like? And incidentally, there's a really interesting study um, uh, by the Cato Institute where they said we're conditioned to fear, 
we are conditioned, we're socialized to fear, especially with people with dark skin. Uh, as white folks, like, um, and it went through how irrational our fears were. This particular study listed um, 12 things that are more likely to kill you than an immigrant or refugee. And they are things like roller coasters, all right? Like a, a cow was one of them. Uh, a swing set is more likely to kill you than a refugee. Now here's one of them, was a vending machine falling on you, more likely to kill you than a refugee or immigrant, you know? But nobody's walking around a Coke machine like, whoa, look out, you know? Like, because we're conditioned to fear. And, and yet we can see from mass shootings and domestic terror that one of the greatest threats in our country is, is radicalized white folks, white supremacists with guns, like the, who are twice as likely to be killed by a white supremacist than by a Muslim extremist in, in this country. But that's not kind of how we're being conditioned. So we've really need, needed to name that. And I'm so proud of our city because we got a whole movement of sanctuary churches and sanctuary families that are taking in refugees. Um, uh, one of our one of my, my favorite stories in our neighborhood was we had this Pentecostal church that started welcoming immigrants and refugees and families that were on the street and creating a safe place while they could find more permanent solutions. But they said, meanwhile, we want to make sure we do hospitality well, right? And uh, so um, some of the federal officials came in. They said, listen, you can't do this. You can't run a shelter. We don't know these folks have documentation. We don't know who these people are. You can't do this. And these are Pentecostals. You don't mess with the Pentecostals, right? And uh, they, these Pentecostals, they, they said, listen, we, we're going to pray about this. And then they met back up and they held a press conference and they said to the city or to the government officials, they said, we mean no disrespect to y'all. Um, we've heard you say we can't run a shelter. So we're not going to run a shelter, but we're going to have a revival. And it's going to happen every night. Our church is open. Six o'clock, the doors are open. They said, and that revival is going to go all night long until the next morning. It was amazing watching the news outside, right? Like, like they were like trying to catch the nuance of the story. They, they said, yes, uh, we just talked to the pastor, and he said they're no longer having a shelter here. They're running a revival. Back to you, Tom. You know, and, uh, uh, my buddy and I went one night, right, and uh, we... Uh, uh, you know, we worship Jesus together. We heard the testimonials of immigrant families and homeless families. And then uh, we had communion. It was beautiful. And after like three hours, one of the bishops stood up and said, all right, it's almost 10 o'clock. So that concludes our formal revival service. The next eight hours will be contemplative prayer. <laughs> this building is open. And uh, I think... Uh, that, that revival's still going, you know, but to me it's a reminder that at this moment in history, we got to do what Jesus said and be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. That we, we know that when we are welcoming the homeless, we are welcoming Jesus. And as we show hospitality to the refugee, as scripture says, we may be entertaining angels unawares. This is holy, holy work. Um, and, and so we, I'm proud of congregations like this. This is actually LaSalle Street Church where they had like a 30-foot banner that said, of course we welcome refugees, we're Christians. <laughs> you know? And in our particular city, our uh, city council has now unanimously voted to welcome refugees in our city. Our mayor said Philadelphia means a city of love, so we're going to live up to that. Anybody's welcome here no matter who you are. So I think that kind of courageous witness is part of what we need, right? And um, so that's just one example of uh, uh, that. Uh, 
and a couple others I'll show you as far as what it's meant for us to be public witness, uh, to bear witness of God's love in our kind of uh, current climate. Um, one of those uh, has been around uh, the death penalty. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in the second session on grace. And incidentally, like, there's... Uh, no one that's a better advocate and voice than, than EJI and Brian Stevenson here in Montgomery. But as we studied this, what began to, to really rip my heart out is that the death penalty has survived wherever Christians are most concentrated in America. That the, the Bible belt is the death belt. It's also the states that held on to slavery the longest. But it's true that, like, um, the death penalty wouldn't stand a chance in America if it weren't for the support of Christians. And as one who believes in grace and mercy and redemption, and um, uh, that, that really began to mess with me because I, I'm one who is passionately pro-life. Uh, but I grieve how narrowly we've defined what it means to be pro-life, right? <laughs> Where you can be like pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-war, and still say you're pro-life as long as you got abortion right. You know, but I, I, I want a, a more robust ethic of life, right? To say that we, that the death penalty is an issue, of, it's, it's impossible to be pro-life and pro-death penalty. So how can we challenge that? But we've got to move people's hearts. And so what we did was we, um, on the 40th anniversary of um, modern day executions, we we uh, we we had the names of the over fifteen hundred people who have been executed, and Alabama is of course one of those leading states when it comes to executions. And we we listed all of the names of folks who have been executed in the last forty years. But it was very important for us to remember the victims of violence. And we had a, a host of murder victims' family members who said, we can, we've got to remember the victims of violence without more violence though, right? Like we, uh, violence is the problem, not the solution. And so we carried roses in two colors, one for the victims of violent crime and one for the victims of state executions. And we um, laid those roses on the steps of the Supreme Court um, with murder victims, family members, folks that were uh, wrongfully con convicted and sentenced to death. Um, and we held a banner that said, stop executions. And um, some of these stories have a similar ending. We were arrested on that one, but, um, you know, but, but what, what happens, I think, is that we challenge the injustices in our society by exposing them, right? And Dr. King said, we've got to expose injustice so that it becomes uncomfortable and urgent and people can't help but respond, right? And so in this case, we, we faced months in jail and over $50,000 in fines for holding a banner. We weren't blocking doors. We weren't disrupted. In fact, we were prayerful and singing. And so what it did was it exposed what is legal and what is right. That's the question that was raised. Because as we did it, the state of Virginia was executing someone. And so when we went to trial, 
our expert witnesses were Derek Jameson, who spent 20 years on death row for something he never did. Um, and it, it, he had six execution dates, so he was a, a, an exoneree, one of those wrongfully convicted brothers. And we, uh, another expert witness was Suzanne Bossler, who was almost killed in a crime that killed her father, and yet she walked away from that convinced that the death penalty doesn't heal those wounds, it just creates new ones. And so she was one of our witnesses. So we, we, bear, we, we put the death penalty on trial, right? And I'm convinced that with a lot of these things like the death penalty, um, uh, we will look back a generation from now on the death penalty like we look back at slavery, right? With shame and horror wondering how did we Christians use the Bible to justify it, right? And yet, the time for courage is not a generation after we've ended it, but it's when it's still accepted and still the status quo. And so I, I, I think that there's no question in my mind that we will end the death penalty, I think within our generation, maybe soon. But the question for me is what role will Christians play? Right? What, what role will we play as the people who believe in grace and redemption? So I'm, um, it's one of those things that we ended up, you know, basically... Uh, not facing any major charges in court, but we, uh, we put the death penalty on trial. And that's why John Lewis, you know, he says, that's why when we get arrested, we can smile in our mug shots because we know we're on the right side of history. <laughs> I like that one, right? So anyway, okay, I'm, I'm going to move through these so we can, uh, we can uh, talk together because I'm trying to leave a, a good 20 minutes, 25 minutes to talk. The last thing I'll say is that one of the most inspirational verses for the early church was the vision of Mike and Isaiah, that God's people will beat their swords into plows, their spears into pruning hooks, right? That we will literally turn instruments of death into instruments of life. So we got so excited about that, we just started doing it. As some of you know, we've been, we've got a bus out here with a blacksmithing forge on the back. We've been traveling around the country, inviting people who want to, to donate weapons and we transform them into garden tools pretty awesome it's very holy work and i'll just show you a few pictures of uh what that's looked like for us our the first donated gun that i ever got was an ak-47 and this guy this guy was kind of like i'm not sure why i have this but i can't see much good coming of it and he donated this this is what it looked like before um it was an ak-47 just like a military style weapon um and uh, that, this is the before shot, and this is the after. Um, our friend turned it into a shovel and a rake. Pretty cool, huh? And so then we um, started getting images of folks that had taken guns and created guitars, and uh, one of them uh, from Mozambique had created a saxophone that he played music on out of a semi-automatic. And so they're hopeful pictures. This is from my friends in Iraq that I, I talked some about this morning. Um, they poured guns in the streets of Najaf and they ran over them with bulldozers and they let the kids drive. And they said to kids, you know, a child shall lead us. And so they crushed those guns. Um, this is one of the most powerful was um, a gun that we found in an abandoned house in Philadelphia. And um, it's one of those abandoned houses that a friend of ours was fixing up and found a handgun in there. And so this time we decided instead of just our blacksmith friends, we'll invite the moms and dads who've lost their kids to beat on that gun. And um, we heated the metal up and this one mother, I'll never forget Miss Ryan's, is she's got a picture of her son who was killed from a stray bullet in Philadelphia. And um, she began beating on the gun. And with every thump of the hammer, she said, 
This is for my boy. And it felt like that, I think that's when we realized that what we're doing is kind of sacramental, right? That it, it, it's not just that we're symbolically changing a piece of metal, but we're praying that the Spirit would heal our world of violence. And we're giving honor to those who have experienced tremendous loss from guns in particular. And so as we've traveled across the country, I mean, we've had a, this one boy, he just started beating, I mean, like just beating on this gun. And he counted one, two, three, counted 18 times. And afterwards he said, that's for the 18 year old that I killed. So God's healing hearts. But I think part of what our job as a church is to create space, right? And to create a sense of urgency that can move people's hearts. And so these last uh, few images are things that we've made um, out of guns as we've traveled around the country. And in fact, uh, I brought one that we can pass around as we open the conversation. This is a little shovel that the, both the wood and the shovel itself is made out of a, a gun. Um, so you can pass it around. As, as we talk together, you can hold it and you can pray for the healing of our hearts, the healing of our streets, and the healing of our world. Amen? Thanks for listening. Amen. Let me pass that around. Man, I threw a lot out there. I was just going to show you a few pictures. Um, but let me just, let us be still on that. And then um, you can breathe in a little. And then we'll have uh, Lucas lead us in the dialogue here. If you've, got, if you've got papers, hold them up. Thanks so much for listening. So our first one here, uh, what part of the gospel and the teachings of Jesus are the most difficult for you to accept and apply to your own life? An easy starter one. Yeah, get off of that. Uh, wow, well, I mean, the whole sell your everything you have and give it to the poor, that's, I mean, that's not the easiest thing, right? <laughs> I mean, we spend our whole life going to seminary trying to convince ourselves Jesus didn't really mean that. Just don't make an idol out of it, you know, and whatnot. But I, I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, Y'all know Rich Mullins? You know that name? Like, uh, yeah, he was a great singer and songwriter. He came to Wheaton College when I was there, and um, he said, you guys are all into that born-again thing. And he goes, that's awesome. I believe we need to be born again. Jesus says that to a guy named Nicodemus. But if you tell me that you got to, I've got to be born again to enter the kingdom of God, I can tell you that you got to sell everything you have and give it to the poor because Jesus said that to one guy too. It got really awkward, you know, and then he goes, but I guess that's why God invented highlighters so we can highlight the parts we like. <laughs> but I read John Wesley. A lot of y'all are Methodists. You know, John Wesley said, if I, if I die with more than 10 pounds, I'm a liar. I've betrayed the gospel and the poor. And so I, I think um, what's interesting to me in all of that is that um, I, I think that part of what God is calling us to is to be in solidarity with those who suffer, to sensitize ourselves to those who suffer, and to discover 
that there is enough for everybody, that we don't need to live in this fear of scarcity, you know, that, that God wants everybody to have this day our daily bread. And so for some of us, that means that we need to fast so that others can feast, you know. And, um, but I think the economics is, is a really radical call that I see in the gospel. Um, um, I mean, geez, you read Mary's prayer, the Magnificat, the mighty will be cast from their thrones, the lowly are lifted, the rich are sent away empty, and the hungry are fed. <laughs> People be like, that's socialism. You're like, no, that's the gospel of Luke, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's challenging. It's challenging. Um, uh, but, I mean, lo loving our enemies, I, I think um, that that's one of those calls that I grew up in a military family. My dad was in Vietnam. Um, it's not my knee-jerk reaction to love people who hate me, um, um, but I, I, I really think that uh, there, there came a point for me where being faithful to Jesus' call to love our enemies meant it's impossible to simultaneously prepare to kill them. You know, like uh, that, that the cross is a radically different way from the sword. And... Um, but it's also a huge, it's a huge burden to think like, am I as willing to die for the cross as people are willing to die for the sword? Um, do we really believe that love is more powerful than hatred? So uh, those, are, those are just a couple of challenges I see in the gospel, you know, but yeah. So uh, the next question is, the first the and that needs to be rolled away in Montgomery is a resistance to any change in the status quo. We are more comfortable in our discomfort than we are trying anything new. How do we roll that stone away? Hmm. I, I think one of the things that at least has been true in my life is that we, we become like the people we hang out with, right? I mean, that's what we all hear as teenagers, you know, peer pressure. And it's always kind of framed as a negative thing. But I think there's, an, there's actually a, an entirely other side of that where um, there's kind of a positive peer pressure that that's what Christian community is about. It's what the church should be about, is surrounding ourselves with people who look like the kind of person that we want to become. And so if we want to be more courageous, you hang out with courageous people and they rub off on you, right? If you want to be more generous, then... Um, hang out with generous people if you want to be more narcissistic i used to say watch the kardashians but they've been supporting eji so i can't do that anymore you know like um like but like like if we hang out with narcissistic people we end up complaining about things we shouldn't be complaining about so i think part of what we're called to do is to to be with people who their creativity their hope their courage rubs off on us you know um and, and that, that's the gift of, of gatherings like this, is part of what you're doing today is just reminding each other that you're not alone. Because the forces of individuality, the forces of uh, um, materialism and racism, all of those are so, um, they're so compelling that if we're gonna swim against the stream, we really need each other. We, we, we need a liturgy, we need a community that can help us continue to move uh, against the flow. Um, so those are a few thoughts on that. Yeah. Feel free to follow up if I didn't get it. <laughs> no one wants to hear me, Shane. Um, what kind of attorney represents you guys, pro bono or not? 
I know there's like quite a few attorneys in the house, and there were this morning too. I love good lawyers. Um, I, I have to say that we've, we've, we've been arrested a lot of times, but we've almost always won in court. Um, and like uh, our, our attorney, in, in, uh, when we did the action at the Supreme Court, is one of the best attorneys in the country. The, the great thing is in Philadelphia, our defense attorney is a, like a legendary defense attorney named um, Larry Krasner. And he called one day, he's like, listen, I'm running for DA. I'm like, what? These are the people that like trying to throw us in jail and stuff, you know. And he's like, no, 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 listen, I'm gonna run on a platform that's against everything the DA's office has been, you know, for. And so um, he he won overwhelmingly. Uh, so like our papers in Philly said. Um, how fed up are Philadelphians with the criminal justice system? So fed up that they elected a defense attorney to the highest prosecutor, right? Because he ended cash bail. He's, you know, ending stop and frisk. He, he's against the death penalty, so he won't pursue any um, execution cases in Philadelphia. Um, and so I, that's our, our lawyers, you know, and I, I think we need um, uh, folks like the folks at EJI and others that are challenging these um, injustices because there's lots of us that can do stuff on the streets we can do things where we're at um, but we also need to change some laws you know and that's where you know when people talk about guns and they say well it's not a gun problem it's a heart problem we always say why can't it be both right like we have a heart problem and a gun problem and like we need God to heal violent hearts but God may be looking to us to change some of our laws so that we do a better job at protecting life. I think the same was true around um, the civil rights movement, right? Like, like no law could change a racist heart. We needed God to heal those hearts and relationships to heal those hearts. Um, but we also needed laws to change so that black folks and white folks can swim in the same swimming pools, right? And go to the same schools. So I think those things kind of have to go together. So I'm grateful for good lawyers. I'm also getting $100 every time I mention EJI. <laughs> the next question is, with all the issues of injustice we have, where do we start? Yeah, wow, what a great question. So, the, the, the interesting thing that I see, that, that I, I've become convinced of, is that we, we should never start with issues. We should start with people. We, because... Um, immigration is not an issue to debate. It's neighbors that need to be loved, right? Like, um, like the, the, uh, to me, guns is not just an issue to debate, but like my heart around gun violence shifted when a 19-year-old was killed on our front steps. And I just knew that we had to do more than just have another memorial service. Right? And so that's where I think the beginning of so much that we're talking about is, is not a compassion problem, but a proximity problem, a relationship problem. It's not that we, you know, Mother Teresa had a great line. She said, it may be very fashionable to talk about the poor, but not as fashionable to talk to them. If we really care about those who are suffering, we know their names. They're not just an issue, right? And we could say this about anything. Um, 
LGBTQ inclusion. We could t say this about um, uh, uh, folks that are um, victims of, of, of police violence. Like, no, none of that is going to become real to us until the, the, this is names and faces and children of God whose dignity is being uh, uh, damaged and squashed. And that's what creates the urgency and the fire in our bones, right, uh, is when... when um, uh, uh, the, 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 it's not just statistics and numbers, but it's uh, uh, people that are made in the image of God. That any time their dignis, dignity is 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 squashed, um, it breaks God's heart, and it should break ours. Um, how is your community? We're rolling. Yeah, we're. we're I think this we'll is going to be our stretch break in a This minute. is going to be our last one before break. Uh, how is your community organized, both from the beginning and currently? How's our, our community organized? Well, that assumes it's organized, um, but I, I mean, we, we started really as this kind of fiery movement, and um, um, you know, we said we, we kind of moved in and we said we're gonna love God and love people. That's enough. <laughs> like that was awesome for like a week, you know. And we're like, I went to one community that they said uh, everybody wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. Uh, so we got to figure out, how, you know, how we're going to get the dishes done. So for us, you know, we had to create structures over, you know, we've been doing some form of community for like 23 years now, and um, and and so each kind of era of our community, it's almost like it's got. Um, different structures, you know, um, and now we've, we've been at it a while, so we've got a little bit more elbow room, and we've got a little bit more of a village than when it was like 10 of us, 20-year-olds living in a house together, um, and, and, and I think there's been different iterations over the years, but I heard someone really wise that had been at community for a while that said, um, the structures for community are sort of like trellises of a garden. Right? If you don't have some structure, your tomatoes are just, they're going to rot. But if you have too much structure, it sort of suffocates the plants from flourishing. And so you got to figure out a balance where, like, what's enough structure to allow people to flourish? And that's what Dorothy Day, the great uh, pioneer of the Catholic worker movement, she said, we've got to have enough structure that we create an environment where it's easier to be good. It's a great way of saying it. It's easier to be good. Right. Um, so even things like um, that we see in scripture, like Matthew 18, um, where it talks about if your brother or sister has hurt or offended you, you need to talk directly to them. Right. So we, we were with this community that had been around 100 years and they, we said, what what's held you together? And they said, straight talk, like talking directly to each other. So there's no room for talking about each other like and um uh, St. Benedict, incidentally, he wrote about this in his rule, uh, the Benedict rule. He said, murmuring is poisonous to community. Um, and he said, it's different from gossip. Murmuring is just when you talk negatively. And he said, you may even have a valid claim. Like, I'm, I might be like, yo, Pastor Jay does not clean up after himself, you know? And um, I might have a valid claim. Like, but the way that I've gone about that is more toxic to community. Like, so we all have a duty to say, if you've really got a struggle, like we need to come together and talk. We, we um, insist that we care about each other enough that we will not talk about or around each other. And that's why I think what you all have been doing, those of you that have been a, um, a part of the conversation here at First UMC, is you've been trying to have some bold conversations, you know, to disagree well with each other. And in that too, I would say is, 
we also as a community had to come to the conclusion of like, what are our non-negotiables? What are our essentials, right? What are the things that if this is not true, I can't really call this community home. And for us, those kind of came in two different categories. One of them is um, a, a statement of belief, and the other one was a statement of practices, right? So we have, we said there are some core beliefs that we believe as Christians that um, these are the foundation for our community. Um, and we'll have lots of volunteers that, you know, are part of things, but these are really the foundations we're building on. And then there are the practices, so things like simple living, uh, a commitment to nonviolence, a commitment to racial justice and environmental justice. Those things were also what we called the practices, right? So the, the, the beliefs and the practices of our faith. And I think most congregations um, also need some kind of core statements. And we're better in the church at creating doctrinal statements than statements of practice, because I think we kind of don't, we want to make sure everybody feels included so we don't always make a statement around things like violence or the death penalty, although the Methodist Church is one of the best statements on the death penalty. But I think we need to also have some bold statements on um, these things that are, you know, we find incompatible with our faith. Um, and uh, so, and then one of the other things I'll, I'll close with is we've always said that our community has layers within it. So we've sometimes described it like an onion, you know, that has different layers. And um, um, we sometimes joke that the outer layers get a little bit flaky on the onion, you know, so you want to keep journeying in. But even in Jesus's community, you see layers, right? You see layers of people that are leaning in to Jesus. And we want to keep inviting people in. So, um, um we have a lot of Muslim neighbors that volunteer with us, but we're unashamedly committed to how we understand Jesus, and they really respect that because we can we can move together. You know, we can build commonness by uh, not kind of watering down what we believe, but by being honest about it and being really good collaborators with others that may not see eye to eye on everything, but we can build stuff together. Um, so one of my farmer friends says, "There's," he says, "building a community is kind of like." having a ranch. There's two ways to keep the cows in uh, on a ranch. One of them is by building a lot of fences and gates, and the other is by having a really good source of food. And he said, the better your source of food, the less you have to obsess with all the fences and gates. I don't know if that, uh, you're a farmer, is that true? You know, but uh, you know, like, like, so I, I think communities kind of like that is, is rather than obsessing with who's in or out, we keep Jesus in the center and we keep inviting people to journey a little deeper in.